Well, I have to say that I am a little shocked that uh, when people think of me, they don't think of empathy. No, I'm not shocked. Uh, they're very, very correct about my wife, and uh, so, so thankful for her. And, and uh, to say that she's a, a safe place for the ladies here, she's, she's that for me as well. And I'm so, so appreciative of her and how God has uh, used her in my life. So, thank you for those kind words, of, certainly of which I am not deserving. But there is one thing that I will uh, lay a claim to, and, and that is that, that I love the Word of God. When uh, when I was in my early twenties, I was not saved. Uh, a bivocational preacher by the name of Bob Brown uh, shared the gospel with me, and I had rejected it at that time. But uh, a few years went on. Uh, that was, so he shared the gospel with me when I was nineteen. A few years uh, later, I took a job on the road doing non-destructive testing, and uh, and 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 I'd I'd been ungodly unbeliever, but my life really started spiraling down, and and I, my behavior started getting more erratic, more wild. The people who used to party with me started saying, "Mikey, maybe you need to slow down." And my relationship started to break down under the strain of my dysfunction. And I came to a place where God, by his Holy Spirit, revealed to me that my worst enemy was my own mind. My worst enemy was believing that I knew the truth. And God, in his mercy, convinced me that what I needed more than anything was his word for him to tell me the truth about me and for him to tell me the truth about myself. And that has been ever since God radically saved me out of that lifestyle. That has been the the truth that has gripped my heart. That if God has spoken and he has, then there is nothing more important than to know what he said and to know why he made me. Why do I exist? What is it that he wants me to do? And these things, these questions are not mysteries that have no answers. God has told us all of it in his word. And so today I'm going to speak on the theme of biblical integrity. And that I just want you to know that this is something I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that this is, if there was one message that I get to deliver before uh, we, we move on, this is the one. This is the one that I want you to know that you need God's word more than you need breath, more than you need food. You need to hear what he said, and you need to follow it. So if you would, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. 600 years, roughly, before the birth of Jesus Christ, God sent a prophet by the name of Jeremiah to his people. And Jeremiah came with a message that the people of the southern kingdom, the people of Judah, they were going to be conquered by the Babylonians, the people from the east were going to come. They were going to conquer them. They were going to carry them away with their wives, with their children, and they were going to take them to the city of Babylon. 
And he said, and you're going to stay there 70 years. And this is a done deal. This is the discipline of the Lord. It's the judgment of God. You can't reverse it. You can't change it. You can only submit to it. And that was Jeremiah's message. And it was a very unpopular message. But there were other prophets in Judah in those days. And they were preaching a different message. They were telling people, the Babylonians can't conquer us. You know why? Because the God of Israel is our God. And he's greater than the gods of Babylon. He can't be conquered. We'll be fine. And this is what God told Jeremiah to say to those prophets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with empty hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. I think the NASB says they speak from their own imaginations. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. I did not send these prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. So biblical integrity, to devote ourselves to know what God has said, to obey it, and to faithfully communicate it to other people. In 1982, there was a group, an international group of scholars who got together and they drafted a document called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Hermeneutics. This is the 25th article from that uh, statement, which I think reflects well the heart of what I'm trying to get at this morning. We affirm that the only type of preaching which sufficiently conveys the divine revelation and its proper application to life is that which faithfully expounds the text of Scripture as the Word of God. We deny that the preacher has any message from God apart from the text of Scripture. God has spoken. The role of the one who who preaches is to expound what God has said. J.I. Packer says the purpose of the preacher is only to open his mouth to the extent that he reveals what it is that God has said. We're not, there's no room for expounding our own opinions. There's no room for expounding cultural popular ideas. It's only, there's only room here for the word of God. And you may be sitting there thinking, well, I'm not planning on preaching anytime soon. So what does this have to do with me? By extension, the passage we're going to look at today, the apostle Paul was experiencing the same problem that Jeremiah was experiencing. There were people in the church who were leading people astray. They were not holding fast to the biblical witness, the the apostolic witness that had been given them. They were leading people astray by imposing their own definitions onto God's words. They were imposing their own beliefs onto God's truth. And so the exhortation to Timothy is to be faithful in communicating what God has said, but by extension... If God has called us to proclaim the gospel to all of creation, and if he's called us to make disciples of all the nations, every everyone here this morning, you, me, the person next to you, we are all called to some teaching and proclamation function. 
We are all called to know what God has said, and we're all called to communicate what God has said faithfully to other people. And we're gonna, we're gonna talk about, you know, not, not everybody who distorts the word of God is sinister. I don't think the people in Jeremiah's day were sinister. I don't think they were trying to lead people to hell. They were trying to comfort people. They were trying to be encouraging. They saw people around them who were scared and concerned about what was in the future, and they just said, oh, God's not going to do that. It's going to be okay. I don't want us to be people who give false assurance and false hope to people who really need a clear warning from the word of God, and we're surrounded by them. So let's go ahead and dig into the text. I'm going to begin in verse 14 and read through 18. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, remind them of these things. These things refers to what he's been talking about already in chapter 2, and it's basically this. He says that, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, for the sake of whom I am in chains. He says, but the gospel, the word of God, is not in chains. It is not bound. So Paul said, basically, on the basis of this indestructible gospel, and the indestructible life of Christ that gives us hope. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you've spoken. I pray even now, Lord, that you would fill me with your spirit. You'd help me to uh, rightly divide uh, this word that you've given us. God, would you help us to hear your word, internalize it, act on it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea here is that biblical integrity that is pleasing to God requires setting aside our own agendas and diligently studying God's word to faithfully obey and clearly communicate to others what God has said. So first of all, biblical integrity requires that we set aside our own agendas. And in this passage, we see particularly two agendas. One is the agenda to make God's word fit our own definitions. Uh, we'll see in, in verse 14. And then secondly, the agenda to make God's truth fit our own beliefs, our own, our own theological paradigms. And this, just like in Jeremiah's day, just like in Paul's day, just like in our day, there's always this temptation when we come to the Bible to want to interpret it through our own framework, our own understanding. We call we call this pre-understandings. This is from a, a book called Grasping God's Word. They say pre-understanding refers to all of our preconceived notions and understandings that we bring to the text. We get these pre-understandings from our culture. So in American culture, one of our core values is that every person has the right to life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. That's so core to the American mindset that we basically live our lives with the assumption that God wants us to be happy. And what makes for my happiness 
is probably God's will unless proven otherwise. So the burden of proof is always on somebody else to prove that what you're doing for your own happiness may not be God's will. We hardly ever ask the critical question of what actually pleases God, what actually brings God glory and pursue those things. But we have to be dissuaded from pursuing the things that make for our own comfort and our own happiness. So we absorb it from our culture. It kind of becomes the air that we breathe. Individualism is another example. We tend to think individualistically. What's good for me and what's good for others is a secondary consideration, which is the exact opposite of the biblical paradigm, right? What's another example? Materialism. Even at a philosophical level, we kind of assume that matter, we're we're raised in an environment that teaches us that matter is all there is, and it causes a lot of people to stumble over things like miracles. We're going to talk about that because if... Matter is all there is if we're in this closed universe. We don't, we're not intuitively open to the idea that God's going to break in and do something. So pre-understanding refers to all preconceived notions and understandings that we bring to the text. Our cultural setting has driven us to decide possible and impossible meanings for the text even before we study them. So as I mentioned, miracles, if you're, if you're raised up, in a, in a secular worldview and you went to a school where they taught you uh, that matter is all there is and that everything that came to be came to be through evolutionary processes, even though you may, as you, you come to Christ and you, you, if you're consciously thinking about the Bible, you agree with what the Bible says, but in the, the intuitive way that you operate is to assume that nothing special, nothing miraculous is ever going to happen. And so we have to consciously recognize that that is a presupposition that we have, that that's part of our pre-understanding, and we have to consciously train ourselves to set that aside. Turn the other cheek. Uh, most American men that I've talked to, they may not know exactly what Jesus meant when he said turn the other cheek, but they know that one thing that he could not possibly have meant is that if someone bad hits you, that you're supposed to let them hit you again. That's the one thing that Jesus couldn't have meant. They can't tell you what he did mean, but we just know that that can't be possibly what he meant because our way, our, just the way that we're trained as Americans, we can't, we can't handle the thought of that kind of meekness. So anyway, so this first, uh, setting aside our agenda, the first, uh, in verse 14, he says, remind them of these things, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So the kind of quarreling about words that Paul's talking about is probably not theological hair splitting. They're not people talking about the meaning of this, but it was actually people taking their idea of a term and imposing it so that it was leading people astray, giving them the wrong idea. In verses 16 through 18, he talks about the resurrection. So it's very possible that what was going on, maybe because... The people, these people who are teaching this, they came from a worldview where when people died, they stayed dead, right? Kind of like our worldview. When people die, they stay dead. And so because they didn't have a category for resurrection, when they hear the apostles talking about a resurrection of believers, they got the idea that, what the the apostles could not possibly mean was that we were literally going to die and then literally be raised again. 
And so we need this word resurrection. We need to unpack its meaning for people in a way that they can grasp. So it's not a literal physical resurrection, but it's a spiritual resurrection. We've died with Christ. We've been raised with him, meaning we've decided to follow Christ. So now we're we're already in our best life now. Right. We're already living the resurrection life. If we're not careful, there are a lot of preachers that can unintentionally preach that kind of message today. When they overemphasize our experience of resurrection power today, they can lead us into this kind of thinking. So the Apostle Paul is pushing back and he's saying, no, he says the resurrection is a literal bodily resurrection. Jesus literally died and he was literally buried and he literally rose again in a body that was better, apparently, than the one that he was buried in. And he says that because Jesus, because that was true in the life of Jesus, everyone who puts their hope in Jesus will experience that same kind of resurrection life. For those of us who, uh, if Jesus tarries, we're all going to die a literal death and we're all going to be buried. But the hope of resurrection is that we will literally be raised again and the promise of eternal life is assured to us in Jesus' resurrection because he rose again. Because he lives forever, we will rise again and we will live forever with him. So it's not a a spiritual resurrection. You all know this. I'm preaching to the choir. But my point is, is that this, what Paul was struggling with, has continued to happen throughout history. Uh, 19th century liberalism was basically the same thing with the rise of uh, the, the scientific revolution and, and people starting to think, well, everything's got to be tangible and measurable. Uh, there was a guy named Friedrich Schleiermacher, and he began to see that the church couldn't seem to answer the questions that science was asking. And so Schleiermacher said, okay, well, let's not worry about whether or not Christianity is historical. Let's not worry about whether it really happened. Let's just focus on the feelings of religious experience and this encounter with God. I've I've been in some churches with almost that same kind of emphasis. We don't want to worry about the facts or the reality behind Christianity. We just want to have this encounter with God that makes us feel warm and fuzzy. That is liberalism. That is heresy. It falls short of the biblical Christian worldview and historic Christian uh, historic Christianity. So we have to set aside our own agenda to make God's words fit our own definitions. Another example would be love. So if you look up dictionary.com, the definition of love is an intense feeling of deep affection. But what's the biblical definition of love? It's a, it's a core commitment to seek the good of others regardless of how you feel. And that's why Jesus could say, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. I'm, I'm fairly sure that you won't have a deep feeling of intense affection for your enemies and for those who hate you, right? Love in the Bible, it's a core commitment to faithfulness, to walk out our covenant commitments. But if you define love as an intense feeling of deep affection, and then you bring in some passages like God is love, God is love and love is a feeling of uh, intense feeling of deep affection. It leads us into all kinds of problems. And we can look at our culture and see this when there's no, no constraints, no boundaries on what love is. If it's just purely an emotional response, it leads to all kinds of uh, problems. 
But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. We're jumping down to verse 16 through 18. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. And so this is where he tells us explicitly that they're, they're saying that this resurrection has already taken place in some sense, and they are upsetting the faith of some. And so here we see the agenda to make God's truth fit our own beliefs. When we come to the text with our own assumptions about what God is like, if we, if we conceive of God as a permissive, doting old grandfather who pretty much just wants us to be happy and will let us get, get away with anything that we want, we will have a hard time. Our tendency when we get to those hard passages that confront us with God's judgment and God's hatred of sin, you know what we tend to do? Gloss right over it. We're not sure, not sure what it means, but I know that it can't mean that God would ever not, ever want me to limit my behavior from pursuing what makes me happy, right? Because I've got this commitment and I, I, uh, I know what it cannot mean. And so we, when we're in this place, we're not open to hearing what God has to say to us through the text. A good example would be same-sex marriage. When people buy in to a certain definition of love, then who you love isn't really an issue, right? Because it's not about who you love, but it's about that feeling of love. So this creates a lot of confusion, but the Bible doesn't leave any room for this. Not only does it say in the Old Testament, that it's wrong. The Apostle Paul said that it's contrary to nature. He's, it's family Sunday. I'm trying to be soft here. Paul says that it's contrary to nature, not because it's a worse sin than any other kind of sin, but he says that it goes against the design of men and women. He said it's obvious to the casual observer that boys and girls are made different and they go together. Right? And then Jesus says in the beginning, he created them male and female. Paul says in the beginning he created the male and female. There's no, there's no movement, there's no softening throughout the whole biblical witness. God has spoken so clearly. But the only, the reason that there, and, and by the way, this in, even among people who would call themselves evangelical Christians, the idea that this is okay is a growing movement. There, there's a, a loud voice that says that, that uh, this is just the way God made them, but that is not the witness of Scripture. So the only way that someone can really advocate this is by bringing their theological agenda to the text and imposing it on there. And they they don't really care about the truth. I actually went to college with a guy who, uh, after a few years after college, he came out of the closet and we... It turned out his parents had retired to the town where I was born, and I was there visiting, and he was there at the same time, so we got together and had lunch. And uh, and he was uh, on the verge of pursuing a relationship, an, an immoral relationship. And he and I, we talked and went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and it's just nothing, there was no biblical text that could speak to him because he had already decided what the text could not say to him. And I told him, uh, his name's Thomas. I said, Thomas, I got to be honest with you. I really don't think you're open to be persuaded from scripture. And he looked at me and he said, you know what, Mike, you're right. He said, I've all, uh, 
I have this desire in my heart. I'm in love. And so because I have these intense feelings of deep affection, I'm going to pursue it. And you're right. It really doesn't matter what you say. That, that's a scary place to be. That's a, that's a, a hardened heart deceived by sin. And any, and, and, and he's not a worse sinner because that's where he was. Any one of us are capable of that kind of blindness and that kind of hardness when we stop seeking to hear what God has said. When we start believing that our own brains, our own reason, our own logic is more trustworthy than God's word, we can all get there fast. So we need God's word, we need it desperately, and we need to keep a heart that is tender and on fire and hungry to hear God's words and to obey them and to teach them to others. Biblical integrity, secondly, requires that we diligently study God's word to faithfully obey and clearly communicate to others what he said. Verse 15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. There, there's a lot in this text. This, this first verb, do your best, is one verb in Greek. And uh, it's translated, some of your translations may say, be diligent. Does anybody have anything different? Be diligent, do your best, study, if you're using the King James. The, the biblical idea behind this word, to do your best sounds a little cheesy to me. Like I hear my mom saying, do your best now, right? But... Work hard. That's a good translation. It means leave nothing undone that is in your power. God has graciously revealed himself to you through his word. And he says that for you to know what God has said and for you to be faithful with what God has said, he said there's part of it that is your responsibility. Part of it is in your court. And you need to be diligent. You need to work hard to make sure that there's nothing that's your part that you leave undone. And so doing your best, what does that mean? It means getting into God's word consistently, deeply engaging it at lots of different levels. I heard a wise man last Saturday uh, sharing with us different ways of, of getting into God's word and how much of it we retain in these different kinds of ways. So so you need to hear God's word, and that's part of what you're doing here this morning, right? You're coming to church with a desire to hear from the Lord through the preaching of his word. But this wise man told me that uh, only only 3 to 11% of what we hear do we retain. And so what does that mean? That means that preaching, going to church and hearing good preaching, or bad preaching, <laughs> is is not enough. It's not enough to go to church and hear this, hear the word preached. What about your Bible reading, your devotional reading? You get in your Bible in the morning, you, only about 10 to 20% of what you read will be retained. What about study? Difference between reading and study? Reading would be like your, your, your casual reading as you're maybe doing your Bible reading plan, reading through the Bible in a year. Uh, study would be getting in a little more depth where maybe you're thinking you're making some observations you're uh, studying doing some summaries of what god is saying in the text now you're getting up there now if you're studying the bible regularly you're retaining about 50 to 75 percent but memorization when you start memorizing scripture and you start putting it in your heart you retain well if you memorized it you retained 100 percent didn't you But 
Can you, can you memorize as much as you can read? No, you can't. So probably when you're the, as you seek to memorize, as you seek to engage with God's word, it's probably going to be smaller quantities, but it's going to be better quality. And then you meditate on what you've memorized. And meditation, I always think about meditation as the pathway from the heart to the hands and to the feet. As I meditate on it, I'm thinking about, God, what does this mean for my life? How is it that I can actually live this out? And so meditation takes us to that place of actually doing God's word. It takes the God's word and it weaves it into the sinews and the fibers of your being so that you actually become more like Jesus because you've put his word in you. And it's, it is one of the means of grace that God uses to sanctify us, to make us holy. And so, yeah, doing your best is not so much about quantity as quality, not so much about theory as execution. We're about to look at a word that suggests that we are going to be evaluated one day. Jesus won't ask you on that day when you're evaluated, when you look into the eyes of your Savior, he won't ask you how much scripture you studied. He will ask you how much you lived. Do you know there's coming a judgment day for believers? This is a... a, truth that is not taught very much we we sometimes talk about salvation like getting our ticket punched like fire insurance and now you're done and you don't have to worry but the bible clearly teaches that you are going to be judged on the quality of your life on the way that you followed christ now thankfully hell is out of the picture you're not you're not in danger of of being cast out into hell fire with unbelievers jesus died for all of your sin, all of your shortcomings. But the Bible warns us that we are going to be ashamed if we have not faithfully uh, faithfully followed Christ. And let's move on to that. So do your best. Don't leave, leave nothing undone that's in your power to do to present yourself to God as one approved. The word that's translated approved here, it has the idea of both testing and... Passing the test. So you'll see it translated different ways in scripture. But I think here it has, both ideas are present in the text. Present yourself to God as one who has been tested and one who's been approved. And he said, how do you do that? By being diligent to study the word of God. To present yourself to God is the same word that's used over and over in the New Testament of this idea of presenting ourselves to God. Uh, Romans 4.10, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It's that same word. It's also used in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 5.27 when it says that Jesus is sanctifying the church so that he may present her to himself without blemish, radiant. Uh, so it's this idea of being presented for evaluation. Or for service, the same word shows up in Romans chapter 12 about presenting yourselves to God, a living and sacrifice, offering yourself to God for service. But many times it's used presenting yourself for evaluation. We hate the idea of being evaluated. You know what we we call people who evaluate us? Judgmental. We think it's wrong for anyone to evaluate us. But the Lord Jesus Christ is going to evaluate you. We, we are called 
to do something in this life. We're called to be a certain kind of people. And I know that some of us, maybe we've been, we've been hurt by people emphasizing the doing so much that it made us feel used or it made us feel burnt out. I'm not asking you to do anything for me, but I'm telling you that the word of God says that you're going to be evaluated. And those who possess the Holy Spirit, I don't know if you're like me, but my heart's desire is to be useful to Christ. And I do, I do get tired and I do get weary sometimes, but the Holy Spirit keeps burning a fire in my heart says, I want to be useful to Christ. I want, I want Him to use me to make an impact. And I tell you, the, the longer I walk with Christ faithfully, the hotter that fire gets and the more it consumes me and the less I can, I have a hard time focusing at work because I'm just thinking about, oh, I'm going to preach that sermon. And I want God to use me. And I want God to use me at work too. But I want God to use me. And I hope that you want to be used by God. I'm not asking you to do anything for me. I'm not asking you to do anything for an organization or an institution. I'm just asking you, do you want to be used by God? We'll all stand. We'll all be evaluated. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test. This is that word that is, uh, what's it translated? Translated as one approved. The idea of being approved is one who stood the test. He was tested and he made it. He will receive, when he's evaluated, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So he says, do your best. Leave nothing undone that's in your power to do. Present yourself to God for evaluation as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So if he says that you need to present yourself as a worker who has no need to be ashamed, that assumes that there is the possibility of being ashamed. There we're back to that idea of evaluation. I had a New Testament professor in Bible college who said, uh, he thinks it's no accident that it's after the white throne judgment that the Lord wipes away every tear from their eyes in the book of Revelation. Uh, that it's, it's after our evaluation that we get the tears wiped away from our eyes. There's some of us who will be ashamed if we've not diligently given ourselves to this work. A worker has no need to be ashamed. The word worker there, it means a farmhand, a laborer. It's actually the same word that's used in Matthew 9. It says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Timothy was a laborer who, who wanted to have no need to be ashamed. Brothers and sisters, you and I, are laborers in that Matthew 9 sense. We are those that Jesus has thrust out into the harvest to share the gospel. And he calls us to, to know it, to internalize it, to know the gospel well, to know the word of God well, and to share it with other people. That's what it is to work in the harvest. So he says, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This word rightly handling means to cut straight. That's why if you if you're using the King James it says what rightly divided it means to cut straight like I said the word worker is an agrarian term so it's like a farmhand and so a lot of scholars think that when it talks about cutting straight it has this idea of cutting straight rows which makes a lot of sense when you think about later on in this passage when uh, Paul refers to Philetus and Hymenaeus these people who were teaching false doctrine, what, how did he describe them? He said they have swerved from the truth. 
So what he's calling us to is faithfulness to God's word that is unswerving to cut a straight path, to go straight, to not to not turn to the right or to the left. And there are in our culture, there are voices calling us, trying to seduce us to turn to the right or to the left. Oh, if you just if you just swerve a little bit off of God's truth, more people are going to like you. You're going to be able to get more people into your church. You're going to be uh, stickier. You're going to be you're 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 going to be more popular. You're going to be less confrontational. You're going to go further in your career. So those are the, some seductive voices that call us to turn to the right or the left. But there are also voices of intimidation. Voices that say, if you if you hold the line, if you go straight, if you cut the word of God straight, nobody's going to like you. You cut the word of God straight, you're not going to advance in your career. You might even lose your job. You cut the word of God straight, you're not going to be able to be close with your family members. Rightly handling the word of truth means playing chicken with the world and not turning. I'm going to go straight. Whatever it costs me, I'm going to be faithful to the word of God. I love how Jesus did this. So and so when we talk about being faithful with God's word on a practical level, what we mean is understanding the, the timeless theological principle that God intended to communicate in his word and faithfully applying that in our lives today. And I love in Matthew chapter 4, we get an example of how Jesus did this. It says, when Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, after after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. <laughs> Does that seem obvious to anybody else? After not After not eating for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, what did he answer? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, so that's great. We, we're all familiar with this passage. We know that Jesus resisted the devil. That's awesome. But what I want you to see this morning is that Jesus resisted the devil by quoting scripture, by cutting straight the word of God. Back in this, do you, anybody know where he's quoting from? Deuteronomy chapter 8. And uh, God says to Israel, as well, Moses is preaching to Israel as they're getting ready to enter into the promised land. They're on the plains of Moab, just to the east of the Jordan River. They're getting ready to cross and enter in. And Moses is preaching one of his last sermons. And he's recounting the history of Israel and how they were so stubborn, how they were so obstinate. And he says, God let you be hungry. God let you be hungry so that you might learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus, what I want you to see here is that Jesus saw that what was true in the life of Israel, that what Israel needed more than manna, what Israel needed more than quail, what Israel needed most was the words of God. They needed to be sustained by the words of God. And Jesus appropriated that truth for his life. And he understood that what I need more than bread is the words of God. And the words of God will sustain me. And so I do not have to give in to temptation. I do not have to capitulate to the world. 
Because I know that God will sustain me if I seek his words more than the temptations of the world. Amen? Jesus took what was true for Israel and he said, this is still true for me because it's the word of God. Brothers and sisters, it's still true for you and me. What we need more than life, what we need more than breath, what we need more than anything that we think sustains us are the very words of God because it's from there that we get life. So biblical integrity that is pleasing to God requires setting aside our own agendas, diligently studying God's word to faithfully obey and clearly communicate to others what God has said. And I just have one closing exhortation for you to give yourself completely to the study of God's word as one who will look into the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ to answer the question, did you do your best? So practically, what does that look like? I was just for fun this morning. I looked up the the average American spends about 24 hours a week watching television. Maybe you're a little more, maybe you're a little less. But imagine if you just took a fourth of that. My my personal practice, I mean, I try to spend time with God daily. But I also on Saturday mornings, I I spend four hours in in my. uh, So I try to get in there by eight o'clock and I go till lunchtime and then I. Spend the afternoon with Terry. So that's when, uh, thank you, Terry, for, uh, she, she graciously allows me to have that time every week so that I can get into the Word of God in a deeper way that nourishes my soul. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just, I guess I'm just saying it to say it's possible. That there, there are things, maybe not Saturday morning, maybe there are other times for you, maybe it's only a couple of hours. But I want to encourage you to give yourself to a deeper study of the Word, and that, that may mean, learning how to study your Bible more effectively. Uh, so I do have a few books here that I just wanted to recommend. Uh, this one is by Duval and Hayes called Grasping God's Word. This is probably the best book that I have ever read on how to study, interpret, and apply the Bible. And it's in a workbook, workbook format, so you go through one chapter at a time, and they've got exercises that will lead you through the process of doing this. This is a... Uh, a college-level textbook, so, you know, it's a little more intense. If you want something that's a step down but still very good is Howard Hendricks, Living by the Book. Um, and he's going to walk you through observation, interpretation, application. And another book that's very helpful is Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart's How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Excellent, excellent book that will help you to understand the different genres of literature in the Bible. Do you know the Bible's literature? It has poetry, it has stories, narrative, uh, wisdom literature, uh, apocalyptic literature. You read this book, you find out what that is. So I encourage you to, all these books would be helpful to you. And we're getting ready to start September 11th, Wednesday night. We're going to be starting the Navigators 2-7 series here, which is a discipleship curriculum that will help you with all these things as well, to help you understand how to study your Bible and other basic disciplines, how to engage with God's word in a deeper level. So I really want to encourage you to be a part of that. My heart's desire for you, what a privilege it's been to be with you for the past three and a half years. I love you so much, and I want you to be, to stand before God, approved. I want you to make an impact in this culture. I want you to be useful to God, and you got to get into his word to do that. And so and many of you are already doing it, and I just want to say excel still more. 
those of you who I hope that nobody's feeling discouraged by what I've said, I just want to encourage you to fall in love with God's word. And through falling in love with his word, you'll fall in love with Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. Thank you. Let me pray for us, and then Keith can come give us some instructions. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. Father, I do I do thank you for the uh, opportunity to walk together with these brothers and sisters at City Church. I pray for them, Father, that you would reveal yourself more and more to them, that by your Holy Spirit you would draw them on and that a hunger for you would be stirred up and that they would press into it, God, that they wouldn't let that fire die, they wouldn't let it go out, but they would stir it up and they would seek you. And as they do, Father, I pray that you would just use them in a powerful way I pray for that they that you would use them to impact the city of Garland. And I don't mean just like in numbers, Father. I mean in a really deep way that those who are hurting, those who are broken, those who are lost, God, those people who are who are ready to quit trusting their own brain, people who are ready to quit believing that they know how to live their own life, would you guide them here? And Father, and would you give City Church Garland the humility and the power of the Holy Spirit to show them a better way? We want to be used by you, Father. We don't deserve to be used by you. We thank you for your humility in in condescending to reveal yourself to us, to speak to us at all as a gift, and that you would want desire to use us for this plan that you have, the dreams and the plans that you have for this church, that you would bring them fully to fruition. We ask it in Jesus' name.